Our Father, once again, we are thankful that you have provided the human race complete information regarding the gospel, regarding who you are, and that you have preserved this information so that each of us is responsible. We ask now that your Holy Spirit, the author of the scripture, would also illuminate our hearts to its truths. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been going through um, an appendix here on the Trinity. And I started this unit uh, by mentioning the one and the many problem. And the reason I did that, even though it's, it's hard material, if you haven't thought about these things before, because we Christians are very fond of answering questions too fast without digesting the question, without filtering question. Um, one of the fellows here in the church passed a thing around on the Internet uh, illustrating this point. Um, I'm not sure he meant to illustrate it, but uh, the example illustrated it. Um, there was a professor in this class and there were a bunch of students. And uh, of course, as many professors love to do, they like to kind of first day of class find out who all the Christian students are so they can attack their faith the rest of the semester. And um, the uh, professor said, uh, so-and-so, you're a Christian, aren't you? And the kid said, yes. And then he immediately started attacking him about, um, well, uh, is God good? Yeah, God's good. And then you know where it went from there. Well, what about evil? What about this? What about that? And I mean, if you saw somebody dying, you'd help them. God doesn't. You do. Um, so, you know, what kind of a God does Christianity have? It's the same old suffering problem. And then he went on to uh, attack the, um, the idea that, well, science says anything you can hear, taste, touch. Have you ever heard God? Have you ever tasted God? Have you ever smelled God? Have you ever, you know? And so, well, how can you believe in God then? And um, what happens in these situations, and then the last part of the Internet thing was where the another Christian got up in class started asking the professor questions and pinned his ears behind his back. But the, the thing is that where the... It's just like fighting a war. It's whoever has the initiative wins. And in this case, the professor controlled the terrain. He set up the situation and he pushed, pushed it all the way to, to victory. And what he did is he got the Christian to be on the defensive. And he started going after the Christian and saying, you know, is God this? Is that, do you believe in God? And it was the Christian that was doing all the answering and he was doing all the questioning. Well, you can control the situation by the questions you ask. And as long as you keep asking the question, then you've got control of the serene conversation. So one of the first things um, is in these kinds of situations is we have as much right to ask questions as the non-Christian. So, let's ask them. And if you pay attention to the Gospels, the Pharisees will often come to Jesus with a question. But if you look, he, very, he usually turns it right around and asks them a question. So that's one of the first kind of things to be cognizant of in, in these kinds of confrontations you can get into, is whoever's doing the questioning controls the terrain. They're picking out the targets, and they've got the gun to shoot the targets with. So, you, one, of the, one of the maneuvers here is to maneuver yourself into the position where you're doing the questioning. Let them answer. 
um, and to apply that to what we're doing, what happens is the non-Christian likes to say, oh, the Trinity is a logical contradiction. How can God be three and how can God be one? Well, obviously not in the same way. God is a threeness, God is a oneness. The problem is we don't know enough about God to adequately and totally define his oneness and his threeness. But, why I'm trying to approach it the way I'm trying to approach it, which may seem a little odd uh, for you, is to show you that the non-Christian starts with his own baggage. And he's got some very serious problems. The one and the many is a very serious, unsolved problem. And when the professor asks the kid, do you ever smell God, do you ever see God, do you ever you know, touch him, that kind of thing? Well, aside from the fact that, yeah, by a matter of fact, some people did hear him touch him. The disciples, they walked with him when he was incarnate. But, but that still is an answer to his question. The point is that if it's really true that everything that we know comes through the senses, then how do we know logic? Where's logic come from? Do you ever taste a logical principle? Do you ever hear a logical principle? We have a see a logical principle. What do they look like? Got dimensions. So the point is that not all truth comes through the empirical. So what this professor did, he set up the situation, saying, "Well, science says that only what you can touch, taste, feel, da da da. That only that's knowledge." But see, that was a wrong premise. That set up the premise. And, and once the Christian kid bought into the premise, I mean, he just led right down the primrose path. So you don't buy the premise in the question gets back to the thing, how many times last week did you beat your wife? Once you set up the question, there's no way you can get yourself out around it. So that's a, a key point. And what we're trying to show here is that no one has solved the problem of logic and language. And anybody tries to tell you, just doesn't know the history of philosophy. Nobody has solved the problem. So don't sit there and say from a, so, a nice, comfortable fortress, and bang, 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 you're shooting at the, at the Christian. You, know, you don't have a fortress. There's nothing you got there. And that's why, when we talk about logic and language, require this one-in-the-many problem. There's got to be a oneness, and there's got to be a diversity. And the two have got to be both valid. You can't have a sentence, like I said last time, anytime you have a descriptive sentence where you have a subject um, we use the dog that dog is a German Shepherd let's get it in focus okay dog is the individual subject that's the particular that dog not another dog, not Joe's dog, not the dog in the pound, this dog. One particular dog, period. Individual. An individual instance of the dog is a member of this group of dogs, this classification of dogs called German Shepherds. Now, that's a classification. Those two words aren't the same. One is an instance, the other is a class. One of those words, talking about something that's, one, that's a part of many, because there's many different kind of dogs, many kind of different German shepherds. This is one particular German shepherd among many German shepherds. But there's the classification that encompasses all German shepherds. 
Now, if it weren't true that we have universal classification, none of us would be communicating to each other. I mean, it's hard enough to communicate as it is. But we never communicate if we didn't share knowledge of what these classes are. You say one thing is red and I say another thing is red, we're off to the wrong race right from the start. We've got to agree on these things. How do we get this agreement? We all intuitively know it's there. We never even give a thought to it. Nobody questions it. We all take it for granted that we have these universal categories of knowledge. Well, we don't taste them. We don't touch them. Nobody sat down and defined them. Where do they come from? Well, we know where they come from. They come because they're design and creation. That's where they come from. But nobody wants to say that. I mean, you, gee, you might offend the Supreme Court. So you don't want to have any God talk mixed into these kind of things. So what we want to say when we start out is that every time we speak and every time we think, whether we're a Christian or a non-Christian, we're working this problem. We just don't think about thinking. That's the problem. And that's okay. But, but then don't come criticizing the gospel and don't come criticizing the Christian faith if you haven't given thought to this. And so, what I'm, I'm moving us to is to see that when the Christian faith discusses something like the Trinity, what we have done when we, when we say that is we have said, back to the creator-creature distinction, that we have God has character, and there's the creation. God is infinite, so I never close the box. That's why I use that symbolism. It's an open box. God has character, God has design, and we are an analog. We have a similarity. We are a finite replica. I'm talking about man here, not dogs and cats now. This is creation called man. Now, man is made in God's image, and there are things about us that are in his image. We eat, sleep, and breathe all the time, bumping into God and relying upon Him in every way. And what's mind-blowing about this is that what this says is every time we go to speak and every time we go to think, in effect, we're confessing the kind of God the Scripture says exists. This is why, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 1 again, this gives added insight into that passage which acts as the theological basis for the responsibility of every man, woman, and child on this planet. It doesn't matter whether they're Hindu, Pakistani, Chinese, Australian, American, German, whatever, Hispanic. doesn't make any difference. <clears throat> every person, Paul says, and people don't like this, people have a hard time understanding this, is Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Now, let's read that again. We've gone through this many, many times, but you can't do it too much. Since the creation of the world... Now, obviously, that, that part of the text means that this wasn't true before the creation of the world. So, since the creation of the world, His invisible or His unseen attributes... Notice, not empirically seen, Professor not smell, not touched, his invisible attributes, even, and Paul explains two of them, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. Now, there's a contradiction there, and in the Greek, it's a very strong kind of contradiction. 
deliberately set up to teach something. In the first one, the word for invisible is aorata. And the verb they are clearly seen is orao. Notice, the, see the stem is the same? This, this noun has that A in front of it, means not. Now, in the Greek, it, it's obviously what Paul's saying. The unseen things of God are clearly seen. Now, on the surface, that's a contradiction. How can you see unseen things? Well, Paul wants that to be a device that triggers some thought. You know, think, he says. As I'm saying this, follow me, Paul says. The unseen things of God, the things that are not empirically observed or touched, he says, nevertheless, are clearly seen, and to that verb stem, or ra'o, he adds a kata prefix, k-a-t-a, and that intensifies the action of the verb. So where you have a verb stem, and you have the k-a-t-a prefix, that always strengthens that verb stem. So that's why the translators have chosen to translate his invisible attributes have been clearly seen. Clearly seen. And you'll notice that um, he then goes on and explains this because if you're following him, you think, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't get this, Paul. You're telling me I can't see his attributes. Then you're telling me I clearly see them. And moreover, you're telling me I clearly see him all the time. There's not a day that goes by that I don't observe it. Well, then he explains why. Because in the next clause, he says, how? What's his explanation of that kata orao, who are clearly seen? Here's how they are clearly seen. Being understood through what has been made. That's how you understand In other words, we go out, we observe the world around us, we observe what's inside our heads, we think inside our heart, and out of that, he says, you understand his invisible attributes. There's no exceptions to this sentence. Verse 20 applies to every man, woman, and child who has ever taken a breath on the face of this planet. That's why there are no such thing as atheists. That's why the Bible says unbelief is self-deception. There are atheists who could pass a lie detector test and say, yeah, I, I honestly believe I don't believe. But the fact that they believe they don't believe, that belief is self-deception. What has happened, and that's the sinfulness of sin, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we do not believe. And it's false. All men know God exists. If they didn't, and God's revelation wasn't clear, how could they be held accountable? The very fact that God holds everyone accountable assumes that everybody's accountable. Well, how can you be accountable to something you don't know about? So, it's undeniable in Scripture that all men, including atheists, know God exists. Not only do they know He exists, but Paul says in this verse, they are clearly seeing all the time. It goes on all the time. Well, what we're getting to in our lesson with language and logic, this is one of the ways that men are in touch with God every single day they take a breath. They are walking in God's world. They are thinking according to the rules of logic that God has implanted in the soul. The only basis for that logic, as we're going to see, is the Trinity. 
And here they are using the tools. And this is why Cornelius Van Til had a very famous illustration he used. He was on one of the public transit systems in the city of Philadelphia one day. And I guess it was, I don't know, they have subways in Philadelphia? I guess not. Maybe it was a bus. And um, he was sitting across the aisle from this uh, parent. I don't know, it was mama or daddy. Well, a parent had a little kid uh, wandering around and wasn't controlling him or something. And the kid did something. And Van Til was sitting over there as this aged professor watching this whole thing go on. And the, kid, the parent finally reached down, grabbed the kid, and sat it on the lap. Well, this kid was a real brat and came up and slapped the parent's face. Now, Van Til used that illustration for many, many years in his theology class because he said, that's an example of the unbeliever saying God doesn't exist. In order to reach God and attack him, he has to sit upon God. Namely, he has to utilize language and logic. He has to utilize the attributes of God in order to attack the attributes of God. For if the universe were really the way the unbeliever hopes it is, there's no basis. Remember, we go back to our diagram of the limitations of human knowledge. On this basis, how do you ever get categories? See, on this basis, you don't know if you have n pieces of data, a thousand observations, n equals a thousand. How can you be sure that 1,001 doesn't bring in new data that totally blows away everything you've known before? If you're honest, you have to say no. And what this leads to is that anybody who believes in some theory of empiricism, that's what this is, knowledge through sensation, any believer, any person who believes this way, has to ultimately be driven to a position that all knowledge is contingent. All knowledge is up for grabs. There is no such thing as enduring truth. But no scientist can operate this way. Why? Because the moment he goes to mathematically describe something, now he's using logic. And logic isn't empirically derived. The moment he writes his scientific report and publishes it in a journal, he's using language. So he's using logic and language just like that little kid on the bus was sitting on the parent's lap in order to reach their parent's face. And in order to attack God, men have to create universals. They have to create these, these tools of thought and language in order to attack God with. So what we are doing in this section on the Trinity is we're trying to think more deeply than most people think, get down to basics, and show that in fact the Trinity is the presupposition of all knowledge. Instead of trying to say, well, we have all these rules of logic and, gee, we're going to set up this test all in all our finite omnipotence. We're going to figure out how to prove God exists. In other words, we, in all our grandiose intelligence, are going to construct some sort of proof. We're going to see whether or not God fits our proof. And if he does, wonderful. And if he doesn't, too bad for him concept goes out the window. Now, doesn't that sound like Eve all over again in the garden? She had two propositions. Satan said, in the day you eat thereof, you're going to die. God said, uh, God said that. Satan said, in the day that you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened. You're not going to die. He explicitly said you're not going to die. So, the moment Eve held up those two statements... Because she valued, in order to do the thing, she had to move... The statements are really like this first, right? God speaks, God's authoritative. A creature speaks, 
a creature is not authoritative. So the statements were, should have been valued like that. But Eve, in order to do the test, said, gee, I don't know. I'll have to see which one's right. Well, the moment she did that, what did she do? She elevated the creature statement on the same level as the creator statement. Now we have two conflicting authorities at the same value level, the same authority level. And then she was going to do her grand experiment. Well, she found out. See, the point is that there is no test, logical, the way we think of normally. There is no test to prove that God exists or not. It's true from the garden. Because God himself is a presupposition of the test. See, it's exactly backwards. Let me try to put it this way. The unbeliever thinks in terms of creating a test and then seeing whether God fits it. Biblically speaking, you know the way we should do it? We should reverse that. It's not the test first, then God. It's God first, or we don't have any test. The basis of the test is human logic, human observation, human thought, human language. Where does that come from? It comes from God. So you can't set up a test without standing on the firm foundation of the biblical God. He is the presupposition of the tools that you need to do the test with. So that's what we're trying to push for here as we go into the Trinity. The Trinity says that on the creator-creature level, at the, cre- at, the creature, at the creator level, there is also a one and a many. This is an eternal one and a many. This is the triune God. There's three and there's one here. And down here, we're going to see some illustrations of the Trinity, but we've already seen this one and many principle operating down in the finite creature. The reason it's operating down there is because a finite creature is made in God's image. So there's no accident that we happen to mirror, whether we want to or not, we daily mirror the Trinity's working in our lives. So let's turn in the notes. Um, let's turn to page three. I just had that one note about the logic um, on the bottom page three. And if you'll follow with me those paragraphs, um, this is just to review a little bit to get into the biblical material tonight on the Trinity. The other foundation tool of human thought is logic. Logic works on language, and it too needs a balance between one and many. Like language, however, is left by unbelief without a foundation. That's a key statement. Language and logic, if you start with unbelief, strict unbelief, remember I said strict unbelief? What do I mean strict unbelief? I mean not letting the unbeliever sneak in knowledge of absolutes and all the other stuff that he's really ripping off from the Christian. That's stolen capital. But just every time he reaches for the candy jar, you slap his wrist. Can't bring in any of that stuff because... On a non-Christian basis, they've got to define their own tools now. They've got to justify logic on their foundation. They've got to justify language and logic their, their way. Tell me how matter in motion evolving creates logic. That's your problem, not mine. I don't have that problem. Because I believe I'm created by God. So I have my problem solved for me. Now, how are you going to solve yours? Tell me about it. I'm going to go with David Hume and make everything experimental? And then Hume wound up saying that you can't know anything? What, what, are you going to go con? How, which way are you going? Well, I haven't thought about that. Well, at the time you did, because it's your insistence that you want to start from man. It's my insistence that I have to start from God. So we're starting from two different places. 
So that's what we're talking about here. From the ancient pagan philosopher Aristotle down to modern logicians like Russell and Whitehead, formal logic has relied upon ideal, abstract, pure categories symbolized by empty marks on paper. These categories must be perfectly stable and sharp or the rules of inference don't work. The extreme adherence to one is perpetually frustrated with the many circumstances in everyday life. Now, I start to give you an example of this. A few decades ago, when the new math replaced traditional arithmetic in American schools, parents and students alike found its heavy emphasis upon abstract formal logic. Remember set theory? And they're going to make all sorts of Venn diagrams. And I don't know whether you got into that or not. But every set theory suddenly came into vogue. Everybody's going to deal with set theory. I never dealt with set theory until I was a third-year mathematics major at MIT. And here we are teaching eight- and nine-year-olds about set theory. Excuse me? Parents and students found out its heavy emphasis on abstract formal logic didn't help at all in making change at the local store. Duh. It's $1.26. Excuse me? What do I do now? Cash register doesn't work. Electricity's off. That would be a major crisis in our civilization if the cash registers failed. Nobody could make change. Don't do that anymore. We all have new math. In fact, many students and parents didn't understand it. A given instance involving numbers or inference in the everyday world is often a complicated mixture of opinion, perspective, and associated meanings. Good example of this. A classroom test that seemed perfectly clear to the teacher comes back with surprising interpretations by the students. Interpretations the teacher never expected when they gave the quiz. We've all had that experience, both ends. The pure categories of Aristotle simply don't exist in the real world. Pagan thought, therefore, finds itself relying upon logical rules of inference in the middle of a world of instances with absolutely no explanation of why logic works so much of the time. Never have they come up with an explanation. Okay, now we go to the Trinity. And we said last time, the Trinity is simply saying that the one and the many that we observe is there, down here at the creature level, because it's inherently, inherent. it's not just God decided, hey, it'd be cute, it'd be cool to make a universe with one and the many in it. It's not what we're saying. We're saying that when God created the universe... Because he is one and many, the universe turned out that way. In other words, God's own character determined this, this straight. And that's why we say the beginning paragraph can't emphasize this enough. We go through this the last three years in a row. But this is a key paragraph. As we've noted repeatedly in this series, the difference between pagan and biblical thinking lies in the creator-creature distinction. The pagan insists upon one kind of reality, one level of being. The Christian insists upon two kinds of reality and two levels of being. How then do the one, pagan and the Christian differ in dealing with the one and the many? Okay, we start dealing then, middle paragraph, page four. The Bible-believing Christian sees the one and the many in creation as what? As derivative, key word, derivative of the one and many in the Creator. How does the one and the many fit together in him? After rephrasing the question in these terms, it's immediately apparent that the trinity, triunity of God provides the answer. The triunity doctrine states that in God's being, which is ultimate reality, both the one and the many coexist in non-competitive harmony. 
The Father isn't sitting there fighting the Son. The Holy Spirit isn't arguing with the Father. One isn't totally trying to fight the other. There's harmony in the Trinity. So can you have one and many without a big fight going on? Of course. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together. They work so much together that we can call the whole triunity one. So there's no inherent necessity for a conflict between the one and the many. But there is in a non-Christian. He's got to overemphasize the one, get totalitarian politics. Or he goes over here to anarchy, emphasizing all the particular... Oh, I got my right, I got my right, Joe has his, Mary has hers. And the totalitarian says, society has a right. That's communism. So, it plays out. But it's balanced if you look at the Trinity. Okay. Now we want to go, and by the way, remember that quote by Rush Dooney on page four at the bottom? That had enormous implications in American political theory. Whatever other influences may have been at work, it is apparent that in the shaping of the United States, a truly Christian concept of the one and the many was a decisive, often recognized presupposition. It's one of the reasons, historically, people, why we have the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government. They've separated the powers, and yet all these powers are part of the government. Okay, now the last paragraph. Conclusion to this, and transition to the material we want to go into tonight in the text. Thus, to the hasty critics who call the Trinity, uh, call the Trinity a contradiction, we respond by saying, just as he lacks, um, thus to the hasty critics who call the Trinity, it must be a contradiction. We respond by saying, just as he lacks a basis for knowledge and ethics, his language and logic are floating in thin air. Somehow, they're just there, barely able to survive the tug of war between the one and the many in everyday use. Moreover, the pagan can't even back up his claim of a contradiction in the Trinity doctrine without violating his own pure abstract categories. To apply his logic, he must invest the terms God, Trinity, three, and one with meanings that he brings from his own worldview, which contaminates the purity of his abstract categories. In other words, he's got these abstract categories of three, God, but he has to fill those up. You can't turn the crank on the logic machine unless you put content into it, right? I mean, if I have an equation and I say y equals ax plus b, how do you get an answer out of it if you don't have an x? You've got to plug in an x to get a y. So, in the logic machine, the non-Christian, or to criticize us, he has to bring meanings into the words, or he can't make sentences. And then that's where we got him. He's bringing in content and meaning to these words, and we say, hey, whoa, whoa, where are you getting that from? To tell us of his unbelief, he resorts to language like the one and the many coexist after all, just as the Trinity doctrine implies. So he has to use, to describe his very position, he has to use language. And the moment he opens his mouth to use language, he's already utilizing a balanced concept of the one and the many. Now what we want to do tonight is we want to survey the biblical material that shows the plurality in God. And the most striking way of doing it, I think, is in the pages 5, 6, and 7... I've tried to show material from the Old Testament because most people don't think it's there. Most people think the Trinity is some new thing that happened with Jesus. Now, it's true that the, the presence of the person of Jesus Christ forced the church to think this through like the believers in past centuries didn't have to think it through. But the presence of Jesus in history, the birth of Jesus Christ, because that's where we started all this, the event of the birth of Jesus Christ and the introduction of the incarnate God-man walking this planet 
forced us as believers to say, we've got to think this one. We've got to think hard about this. This is, this is forcing. We can't kind of say, well, gee, you know, that's kind of nice. Now we've got heretics knocking at the door. We've got conflicts going on. We've got to come to a statement. That's why the doctrine of hypostatic union. But you remember, all through those 400 years of trying to state who Jesus was, what was the underlying problem? What was the underlying problem? All those heresies. They started with the wrong concept of God. They either had so monotheistic that it was a solitary monotheism without allowing for a plurality within the one God. Or they went off to some pagan thing and screwed it all up, messing up the creator-creature distinction. So we want to look now at Old Testament supporting data. The first key thing, and in that sentence where you see Old Testament supporting data, one of the problems here is that people think of the Old Testament in terms of medieval and modern Judaism. Medieval and modern Judaism do, does promulgate a solitary monotheism. But that's not Old Testament Judaism. That is Middle Ages and modern Judaism. So, let's not read stuff into the Old Testament text. It's not there. That's a tradition of modern Judaism, not ancient Judaism. Where do you go to find ancient Judaism? Old Testament. So, we want to know what Judaism believes. We read the book of Judaism, which is the Old Testament. So, in looking at this now, we, we find something different. We find there are two words. Deuteronomy 6.4, if you turn there a moment. This is one of the theme songs of modern Judaism. It always has been crucial, but this is the one that has uh, struck a note over the years. The Lord God is one. And there's two Hebrew words. In Deuteronomy 6.4, that word ichad is used for one. Now, middle way in that paragraph of Old Testament supporting data, I tell you about a medieval rabbi called Maimonides. Maimonides was one of the great... They, Maimonides is to Judaism what probably Thomas Aquinas and Augustine is to the Christian church. He was a, a man who had tremendous influence on all the generations who, who, after him. And he's a very important figure because this guy's calling in life was to protect Judaism from Christian intrusions. He, he built a fortress for, for Judaism. And he's the architect of a lot of modern, what has come down to modern Judaism. Well, Maimonides went far beyond the ancient Jewish sources. The famous Shema, that's what the Hebrew word uh, that is used to describe Deuteronomy 6.4, if you hear a Jewish person talk about Shema, you know what it is? In Deuteronomy 6.4, what's the first word? Here. That's Shema. So, they will often label a text by the first word. So that's where that comes from. 
But this is the text they're talking about. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And they say, See you Christians? There's no three there. It's just one. So you Christians, you've changed the Old Testament. Well, this word Shema, this Deuteronomy 6.4, uses the Hebrew word Echad. This one, top one, word number one. It doesn't use the second one. Now, the second word also means one. But it means an absolute one. A plain, simple, ordinary one. And modern Judaism thinks of Deuteronomy 6.4 in terms of word number two, not word number one. And we're going to show now why that's important. But there's a shift, and these two words play the role in this shift. Echad means one, but it allows for multiplicity. Anybody know Genesis 2.24? Let's think about it. Genesis 2, who's created in Genesis 2? Genesis 2, remember, recapitulates day 6. Man was created in day 6. What does Genesis 2 do? College professors always say, ah, she contradiction between Genesis 2 and Genesis 1. What do we say Genesis 2 was a, was a repetitive and developed narration of what happened on the sixth day? And what does Genesis 2 say? Woman was created. And then what happens? Man and woman become how many flesh? One flesh. Guess what the word is there? Yakit or Ikhad? Ikhad. One flesh. Now, is there a multiplicity? You betcha. Right? Every married person. You know there's multiplicity. Right? So, there's no erasure of personalities. They're still there. But, Ikhad is used. So, now here's one of the first references in the Bible for Ikhad. And it's talking about two people. In a relationship, yeah, one marriage, but within that oneness, there's a two-ness. So, we distinguish these two words by saying yahid is a word that refers to absolute, simple one. Echad is used for oneness in the sense of a collection. and can be one. I mean, it is used for the numeral, numeral one. But the way and the flavor in which it is used tell us that the Bible authors were quite comfortable using this word where there was multiplicity involved. Yahid is never used in the Old Testament to describe God's personal essence, which is sort of interesting. It's never used. When you get passages like Deuteronomy 6.4, it's always Echad, not Yahid. The Old Testament obviously taught clear-cut monotheism, but it did not teach the rigid, absolutely unified monotheism of post-biblical Judaism. Post-biblical Judaism. Not Old Testament Judaism. Old Testament differentiation within the unity of God appears in at least four ways. Now let's look and survey the four ways in which you see a multiplicity inside that word he caught. Now we're not saying, folks, don't get me wrong, we're not saying that you're going to see the Trinity in all these passages, okay? It's not what we're saying. What we're saying, however, is there's more than one there. There's more than one going on. There's something funny going on here in the Old Testament. Now, I know people can say, well, it's Monday morning quarterbacking. You know, we might not have seen it. We've been an Old Testament saint. We might not have sensed this. Well, 
Maybe. Maybe not, you know, because we really don't know how much they really knew about some of these things. And, you know, we can sit back from our New Testament perspective and look back and say, oh, yeah, Abraham knew that. Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But the plurality is there. Now, page five is the first one. On page six, the second one is the angel of Yahweh. The third one is the word of Yahweh. Uh, and then I guess I, I go into the explicit references. So let's look at these three. And then we'll get to the fourth one, which is an explicit testimony of the triunity of God. First one is that God appears to use the plural pronoun. We've already covered that in Genesis 1, the creation era. Who makes man? We make man in our image. What is the explanation for these first person plurals? Now, for those of you who didn't take Latin, didn't learn the English language right, we have singular, plural, we have first person, first person, I, we, pronoun, then we have objective, sentence, and so forth. But this, and this, by the way, is another reason why in the King James, the second person is preserved and we don't preserve it in our language. Look at this. In the King James English, when I talk to you, Warren Miller, or one of you as an individual, I use a particular word that we don't use anymore. I don't use you. King James doesn't use you when it's talking about singular. It uses the. And ye. That's Old English. And that's part of the degeneration of the English language. As time goes on, we get sloppier and sloppier. We've lost that. It's gone. Nobody uses that anymore. In Texas, they try to make up for it by saying y'all. Because it's singular. And then, then when you say y'all, it means a group of you. But most people in the English language today don't do that. It's just you. All right. But we have a particular technical question here. Why does God, a monotheistic God, choose this instead of this? In the first chapter, no less, of creation, we've got the plurality of God. What is the explanation? Some have argued that the plurals in the creation narrative must refer to God and angels. That's the usual explanation. It's God and the angels are saying. This view, however, is contradicted by Psalm 8.5 and Hebrews 2 that expressly deny that man was created after the pattern of angels. It doesn't say we're made in the angel's image. It says we're made lower than the angels. So it's not God and the angels that get together and do the tweaking. God alone did this. It also conflicts with clear statements that God alone created man. Turn to Isaiah 44.24 for a moment. I would just love to have the time in my life to study the book of Isaiah sometime in thoroughness. Particularly in, in, from chapter 40 on. Amazing book. Chapter 44, verse 24. Now look at what he says here. He doesn't talk about angels making men. In Isaiah... Chapter 44, verse 24, he says, Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am maker of all things, stretching out the heavens, how? By myself and angels? No. 
by myself and spreading out the earth with angels all alone. So see, God is a solitary agent of creation. Angels were not involved in creation. They themselves are being created. So we have to dismiss that. That's not true. The plural, this plural thing isn't we, meaning God and angels. So we can wipe that one out. So now what is it? Others seek to explain this plurality as merely a plural of majesty, a regal we. And you often hear important persons say, well, we believe this and we believe that. And they're using the we kind of for themselves. So people have said, that's a plural of majesty. And that's all that God meant. Well, such an explanation is thoughtlessly shallow. Why should there have been arisen in human language a plurality of majesty if it wasn't in turn due to a prior truth of the plurality of God? It is not merely a plural of majesty. It is a plural of majesty that is incomprehensible in depth and richness, referring to the plurality of being in God. Okay, second thing. Everybody clear on that? The plurality of God? It's there. It's in the text. Got to explain it. Doesn't prove the Trinity. It sets up and allows for the Trinity. So it, it keeps people from saying that the Trinity conflicts with the Old Testament. No, it doesn't. Okay, second thing. The angel of Je- Jehovah. Now, while we're in Isaiah, turn to Isaiah 42.8. And in Isaiah 42.8, this is the essence of monotheism and the creator-creature distinction. God says in Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. I will not tolerate worship of anything outside of myself. And the other verses there, Acts 10, that I list in the notes, Revelation 19... It's where those angels show up and the guy go to worship the angel. Hey, the angel says, no, no, no. Hey, I'm not God. So, always in the scripture, there's only one to worship. Okay, got that? Now watch what happens. As a figure apparently distinct from God, the angel of the Lord occurs throughout... Let's look at, um, go back to Genesis, uh, where he first occurs. And um, let's see from uh, uh, Genesis 16.7. That would be a good one. All the way back to the first Jew. Now, who prior to chapter 16 in Genesis has promised Abraham the Abrahamic covenant? God. Right? God is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Uh Uh-oh. Then how do you explain this one? In Genesis 16, the angel, verse 9, comes to the woman. By the way, the first presence of the angel is to a female in trouble alone by herself and she's been thrown out of a home. Interesting lesson. 
of God's compassion. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress, submit yourself to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they, too, they shall be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, you will bear a son, you will call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Verse 13. The Lord who spoke to her. Who's speaking to her? Angel of the Lord. Now, who wrote this text? A Jew or an Arab? Hagar, you know, is looked upon by the Arabs as one of the mamas of the Arab nation. But who wrote this text? It's Jewish. This is Old Testament Judaism. So, in verse 13, it's an interpretation by the author of the Genesis text about what this woman just did. And he says that she saw the Lord. The Lord who spoke to her. And yet, the immediate text says it was the angel of the Lord that spoke to her. Well, then, who is this angel of the Lord? Well, we could cite many, many of those verses. And I really encourage you to look these up it just it just creates more of an awe of who our God is to go through these things, and you can see um, my wife's been teaching judges in the precepts class, and she's gone through those passages. The angel of the Lord is a real interesting being. So at least we conclude that there are two two persons: there's angel of the Lord, and there's the Lord. Now the question is. In the light of New Testament insistence that no one has ever seen God in His fullness, one can only conclude that the angel of the Lord who was seen face to face was the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, in pre-incarnate form. The word God in the four passages can then be understood to refer to the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, who was never really seen in His wholeness, in His completeness. Next we have the wisdom of Jehovah or the word of Jehovah. Now I know... This is a little subtlety about the Hebrew text here. We think of, when I say Word of God, and you use the word Word of God, most of us, nine times out of ten, what do we have in mind? We talk about the Word of God. We have in mind the Bible. But watch it here. There is an expression in the Old Testament when the prophets were getting their information from God which they later wrote as Scripture. They didn't get it from Scripture. This is original revelation. Before they wrote it as Scripture, there's this expression that says, the Word of Jehovah came to them. When you read the Old Testament, think how many times you read that. The Word of the Lord came to prophet so-and-so. The Word of the Lord came to so-and-so. The Word of the Lord came to so-and-so. Now, that's not the Bible coming to them. The Bible was being written by them. So what was this angel? What was this word of the Lord that was coming to him? That word of the Lord was sent to do things for God. Turn to Isaiah fifty-five ten. Notice how many times we go back to Isaiah. Remember, later on we're going to talk about, in the Doctrine of the Trinity, there's this annoying concept that says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and the Son is always begotten of the Father, and we have to deal with what begotten means and what proceeding means. It's in the notes that we handed out tonight, by the way. 
Isaiah 55 sets this idea in motion. Isaiah 55.10 For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. Now, so far there, it's all impersonal pronouns. It. But there's something more powerful than just thinking of that in terms of a Bible and a written text of paper. Something's going on here. There's the word of Jehovah, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet. It's sent by the Father and returns to the Father. And it accomplishes tasks. I grant you, it's not a complete, clear exposition. All I'm trying to point to you is that the Old Testament text has these openings, these cracked doors, these partial windows. And that's what we're seeing. There's a structure here embedded in the Old Testament itself. It delivers from, and paragraph page six, it delivers the elect from judgment. It controls nature. What was one of the arguments we used, the category of arguments for the deity of Jesus that the church used? One of which was what? Remember? Substitution of actions of God, that Jesus performed things that only God could do. Remember we said Jesus pronounced forgiveness of sins? Not that he announced that God forgave him. He said, I forgive you. He created things out of nothing. So, when Jesus Christ takes on the roles of the Creator, we assume He must be the Creator. Well, it's a similar kind of thing that's going on here. This Word that comes from God controls nature. It saves the elect from judgment. This Word is clearly distinguished from every other part of creation because it says the creation, Psalm 33, was created by this Word of the Lord. Not only is the word distinguished from all the creation, it's distinguished from the Creator in Proverbs 8. I was with Him from before the creation of the world, says wisdom. How can that be? I was there, says wisdom, when He created the world. So who's that? Before, crea- before creation, the word existed, yet it existed with an identity separate from Yahweh. Okay, now on page 7. By the end of the Old Testament era, Jewish thought had developed this concept, the word of Jehovah. Now, this is Old Testament Jewish thought, not modern Jewish thought. This is Jewish thought at the time of the New Testament. Aramaic translations and commentaries on the Old Testament called Targums frequently mention the divine word of Yahweh. This is not Christian here. We're not talking about somebody that apostles did. This is all stuff within the Jewish community. Dr. David L. Cooper, who, by the way, for many years was a pioneer in Jewish evangelism in Los Angeles. We shall begin with... Gen- he wrote a fantastic series of books that are out of print, never have been reprinted to my knowledge, and I had to go to Dallas Seminary to dig all this stuff off. It's on bookshelves way in the back of the library. But a fantastic series. We shall begin with Genesis 19.24, which reads in the American Revised Version as... Now watch this. Turn... Uh, you don't have to turn Genesis 19. You know the story. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's the way the American Revised Version reads. Then Jehovah rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from Jehovah. Now, why are there two Jehovahs in that sentence? Why does it say Jehovah, subject of the verb to reign, 
But then there's a prepositional clause from Jehovah. So, the Lord reigned from the Lord. Then, and so the Jewish commentators... Now, the next sentence in Cooper's work is he's going to show you what a rabbi thinks about that verse, Genesis 19.24. So, next sentence describes a, a targum or an interpretation of that verse. He renders the original text in this passage as follows. And the word of the Lord caused to descend upon the people of Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord of heaven. Here we see that Jehovah who reigned the fire is called the word of Jehovah. The translator then used the term, the word of Jehovah, in referring to the one in the sacred text called Jehovah. See the interplay? In one place it's Jehovah, in the next place it's the word of the Lord, word of Jehovah. Among uh, so many such instances um, and so forth, he, he illustrates the others. And then the next quote, also from Cooper, from the quotations I have noted, it becomes clear that the official ancient interpretation of the synagogue was that the word of Jehovah and the Holy Spirit were divine personalities and were distinguished from the one who was called Jehovah. From all the facts which we have thus learned, we can see that Moses and the prophets were Trinitarians and the great leaders of Israel in pre-Christian terms. A lot of scholars have criticized this sentence, by the way. You've got to be careful. I think Cooper probably went too far. This, this sentence where he's saying they were Trinitarians, I don't think they really were. I think they just never thought about it. It's just that I think he's reading too much in. They saw plurality inside God, that's all. He should just, that's, it's a more careful sentence. We can assert that with all confidence that Christians who worship the Holy Trinity are simply worshiping the same God who revealed himself to Abraham. We would agree with that sentence. It's just the other one. I don't think they consciously thought of themselves as Trinitarians. All right, but now we're going to say, go to the mysterious passages in the Old Testament. And I quote them, so you can look them up if you want, but just, just look at these texts. These are very interesting texts. Now, here is where the Trinity may indeed be present in the Old Testament, in very clear form. Isaiah 48:16. Yahweh speaks. In fact, to see this, um, let's turn to Isaiah 48. We may run a few minutes late here tonight. Isaiah 48.16. Now, you've got to see the context. So go up to verse 12 in Isaiah 48. So we identify the speaker. See, it's all speech quotes in your translations. Okay, who starts off the speech? Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I call. I am he, I am the first, I am the last. So who's the speaker? It's Jehovah, right? Okay, now go down to verse 16. What do you make of this? It says, Come near to me and listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time I took place, from the time it took place, I was there. Now the Lord of God has sent me and his spirit. Question. What is the pronoun, what is the antecedent of the pronoun me? Okay? Every pronoun has an antecedent. Antecedent means a noun that the pronoun stands for. What's the antecedent of me? It's the speaker. But who's the speaker? The Lord. So, now you've got two lords here, right? Verse 16. The Lord God, that's Jehovah's name there, the Elohim, the Lord God sent me, and me is the guy in verse 12, 
and He sent His Spirit. You see, it's a pretty powerful text. You have to think about that one. Okay, and the other text that I cite is in Isaiah 61.1. So if you turn there, This is a quote that one Sabbath day, the Lord Jesus got up in a synagogue, Book of Luke recounts this, and he quotes this passage. And the people really get ticked off. They know what he means when he got up and said this, this young son of a carpenter coming up in our synagogue and daring to say after reading this scroll, because the men in the congregation would take turns reading the Bible, and he read the scroll and said, this day you've seen it fulfilled. It's me. And walked and sat down. Can you imagine what happened when he did this? So, in 61.1, we've got to know the context. Go to the previous verse before 61.1, and what is that? That's chapter 60, verse 22. Who's speaking there? Context. Verse 22, it's I, the Lord. Now, in verse 1 of 61... What happens? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Who's the antecedent of the pronoun me? The speaker of verse two, 22. So who's that? It's the Lord. Now you've got the Lord has anointed the Lord. Moreover, now the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the broken heart to claim liberty captives. And we always quote that of Jesus, but... Right tonight, we're not worried about the rest of that verse. We're just looking at the first part of it. So you remember, there are these two passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah 61.1 and Isaiah 48.16. And they, there's something going on here. Now, it's true. The Old Testament saints may not have really delved into this much. Remember, it took the church 400 years to work it out. So they didn't, they didn't spend too much time thinking about this, maybe. But it's there. So the same God speaks in the Old Testament as in the New. He has a plurality in the Old, and clearly these two passages in Isaiah show its fourness, twoness, fiveness, or threeness. Threeness. So it's not any plurality, it's a triunity that's involved here. So that's the setup. Next week we'll deal with the New Testament evidences, which I don't think we have to spend too much time on because we've already dealt with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the notes on page 8 and 9 refer mostly to the personality of the Holy Spirit. Then we want to get in next week. Uh, we will meet next week. The week after that they have the drama here, so we'll have to skip a week. But next week we're on. Um, page 10 and 11, pay attention to that because that is a statement of the parts that go into a proper statement of what the Trinity is all about. And we're going to struggle with that. That's not easy material either. Because this is going to be... It's taking advantage of all the Scripture that we're looking at and then going back to the one and the many problem all over again. So, we're going to combine all that stuff, one and the many stuff, with all the, the, the Scripture data. And we want to pull it together now into the doctrine of the Trinity and try to understand that. Father, thank You for our time tonight. We thank You that You have chosen to share 
your being with us, knowledge of your being. And we pray that we'd be ever more perceptive in how daily we walk touching you at every point. That you're before us and behind us and all around us and in us. And may we have the insight to respond with thankfulness to your presence. May we also have the courage and the insight to share this with our non-Christian neighbors and acquaintances. Making them aware of their own God consciousness. And that daily they're bumping against you in every way. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. On that stuff. <laughs> I don't mean to refer to it as stuff, but it's material. Yes. It's not quite as clear, Laura, but where it says the word of the Lord came to the prophets, I'm investing that with with the fact that in many of those contexts um, it allows for the fact that it's a hypostasis, that there's more to it than just a revelation going on. That because the way the word in wisdom is used interchangeably in the Old Testament and the word takes on, uh, the wisdom, the word kakma, takes on a distinct, what the theologians call hypostasis, a, a being in and of itself in, in passages like Proverbs 8. And it also explains why suddenly, without warning apparently, John's talking about, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Where did that come from? All of a sudden. And what we're trying to say is that it wasn't all of a sudden. That John, when he starts opening his Gospel with this magnificent passage, the Word was God, he actually is in, in continuity with what rabbinical thought was thinking about. And you read Cooper's work. Cooper did an awful lot of work reviewing the Targums. Um, he was one of these self-taught guys, sort of like Dr. Chafer who started Dallas Seminary. And he always felt like he, in order to evangelize correctly Jewish people, he really had to immerse himself in their culture. And of course, the Trinity is the big dividing line. And so Cooper did a lot of work on these Targums. And that's passages like that, his books are filled with them, where he shows that the rabbis in the centuries leading up to Jesus' era and even after that, were talking this way. They weren't just thinking of the Word of God as, as a text. They had more, more oomph to it than that. And that, as I said, would explain why John didn't suddenly come up. I'm not saying John couldn't have come up with that had the Holy Spirit led him that way, but usually when you see these things, it wasn't just, they just didn't think that up. The Old New Testament authors got an awful lot out of the Old Testament. see that more and more as I study but that's a good question. question being whether um, I'm saying that the word of the Lord in the Old Testament means more than just revelation in general, but rather it also refers to a being. And I can't generalize that and say in every case, but I think I can say that in those times and places where the text says the word of the Lord came to the prophet, um, it allows for that. Yes.
Well, uh, Donna brought up the issue of Ephesians 6. Um, let me think if I can remember. Um, Ephesians 6 is not a new thing either. It comes out of, comes out of Revelation, um, uh, Isaiah 59. Is it Isaiah 59 where it comes from? Uh, and it's significant what the image is there. Um, see, this is another example. You start studying the Bible more carefully and you um, realize... I forgot what, where that is. Um, yeah, check and see if it's got a cross-reference in the, one of the two little indices there. Um, but I remember there's a passage in Isaiah it talks about the shield and everything. Um, ah, 59-17. knew it was up in the 50s. Okay. Now look at that. See, here's where, if you read the Old Testament, it helps you interpret the New because these guys that wrote the New Testament weren't making this up. They didn't dream this. And, and the Holy Spirit, you know... Do you remember the case of the Emmaus Road? Do you remember the report that the disciples said after they walked with Jesus? What happened on the Emmaus Road? Remember? He was walking down this road and Jesus in his resurrection body showed up. But whatever his resurrection body looked like, he didn't have his name tag on it. And, and they didn't know it was Jesus. And remember they, he said, well, what's been going on? You know, give me the, What's the newspaper say today? And they said, "Well, we thought Jesus was going to be the Messiah, and he, you know, they say he died, and they say rose." And then he says, "Well, I think you're a little stupid, guys. You don't believe the whole Old Testament." And then he proceeded. Then it says in Luke, he proceeded to tell them all of the law and the prophets. And after that little Bible class, what does Luke report? He's a medical doctor, remember. And Luke, you'll see him do this repeatedly in the Gospel of Luke, not in the other Gospels. Matthew concentrates on bureaucracy questions because he's a bureaucrat. Luke uh, reports on all these emotions and how people felt on healings. And Luke says, their hearts burned within them. Now, what was Jesus doing? Think about it for a minute. On the Emmaus Road, was he generating new scripture or was he saying, guys, let's look at the Old Testament text a little more carefully. See? It was rooted back in the Old Testament text. And here's a good example of it. We have this Ephesians 6 things, and we all, because we're New Testament people, you know, we go into there and we start talking about the sword of the Spirit and the breastplate, and we want to get all the armor down. That's fine to do that. And you'll, you'll often hear it said, well... Ephesians 6 is modeled after the Roman soldier. Well, maybe. But I don't think that was the primary model because what do you do over here? It's just that it wasn't necessarily a model of the Roman soldier. It's a model of a soldier. And that now the Lord saw and was displeasing his sight. There was no justice. He saw there was no man. He was a star, so there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him now, notice this strange text. Here's another one of these passages. It's very strange. Look at that text very carefully. Now, notice the sentence in verse 16. His own arm 
brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. Doesn't it almost sound like there's another entity there? And the word arm often becomes an emblem in the Old Testament of the Messiah because the arm was what accomplished something. His own arm brought salvation. His righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. It's a picture at the end times of the Lord God executing judgment. Now, what does that suggest about the interpretation of Ephesians 6? Ephesians 6 is applied to whom? The church. And what is the battle going on in Ephesians 6 with? The church is doing battle with whom? Principalities and powers. Now, you see, there's a stunning thought in that passage. Well, we don't have time to go into it, but if in the Old Testament original context it's talking about really what we would call the second advent, the, the finalization, the, the, the end period of history when good and evil are going to be separated, God's going to straighten it all out, and He's going to bring in His kingdom. And in Ephesians 6, we have this very imagery used of the church fighting the principalities and powers, what does that suggest the church is doing for 2,000 years? Preparing the way for the return of Christ by doing what? By doing battle in some unseen way with the principalities and powers who will ultimately, in the millennial kingdom, what will happen to them? The evil ones. They'll be, they'll be knocked off the earth. So, without straining and stressing here, it's just that Ephesians 6 has a lot more to say than just individuals doing battle. It's talking about the place of the church in the program and plan of salvation. That the battles that we go through in our lives against the principalities and powers is part of a battle that began with Jesus Christ and is going to end with His second advent. Something's going on. It's almost as though we in the church age, though we don't claim land, we're not into crusades to restore the Holy Land, we're not... We're not bringing in the kingdom in a physical, political way. In a way we are, but it's indirect. Somehow, our faithfulness to stand for the Word of God against the principalities and powers is what is a mechanism that is going to bring in the kingdom. Because it's part of this. Paul's not picking this out randomly. He is talking about the judgment of the end times. And the church by asserting its stand of faithfulness with Jesus Christ and the authority of Scripture is standing against the powers that want to prevent the establishment of the kingdom. So we have some role in this. And God isn't relegating it just to angels. Somehow we are involved. He hasn't told us all the... But all He's told us in the New Testament is you trust and obey. But what Ephesians 6 makes you conscious of is that while you're trusting and obeying, there's all kinds of unseen things going on around us as a result of the, our trusting and obeying. Our eyes aren't open to all that's going on around us. But something's going on around us. And the Holy Spirit wants us just to be aware there's some cosmic things going on. We don't think because we're just doing our own little thing down here. We don't really get involved in that. And maybe the Lord doesn't want us to. Maybe if we really saw what was going on, we'd be freaked out. 
But we do know that we're under, we're under watch. We do know that the angels are learning something from us. I mean, what do we got to teach them other than bad joke? But nevertheless, they seem to be learning from us something. The powers and principalities are watching us. So, in answer to the question then, the plurality of God shows up somewhat in this passage. Anything else? Yes, Lord. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's true in Hagar's case. It's true in Abraham's case. Was it true in Judges? That's the way it happens in Judges? Yeah. You're right, Laura. That the angel of the Lord shows up and... It, but, of course, he also showed up in another form, the captain of the, of the host of the Lord, to Joshua. And, and, yeah, I guess you could even defend that too, Laura, there, because Joshua takes up his sword and he's on sentry duty. And he's wondering, are you for us or against us? So it's obvious. I mean, it's not some stunning theophany or he wouldn't be drawing a sword at God. So he's a, he's a sentry and... Uh, just had some army class today and we were talking about the sentry, the role of the sentry. And you come up the sentry and you challenge and there's an exchange. Oh, you don't pass, you get shot. And that's the same thing about here is that that's what Joshua was going to do. Take care of this guy. This is a, this is a secure area. It's his army. It's his command post. And this guy shows up here and Joshua's on security. So then it's very clear the angel just speaks. And Joshua knows who it is. Who it is. An amazing person. Yes. Now it's just the, the, the total expression, the Malak um, Yahweh. The, the angel of the Lord. The problem with the Jehovah's Witnesses, because, see, the problem with Jehovah's Witnesses, if you can relate to that chart on page 37, they have a screwed up idea of God. Their whole basic idea of God is screwed up. That, that bad concept of God that they have, which is Arianism, Job's went nothing more than uh, recycling of that old heresy. That forces them, every time they get into a passage, to run that passage through a certain grid. And what they do is they make Jesus an angel, in this case usually Michael. I think uh, Job's witnesses say he's Michael. Uh, but the problem with that is, what did we just go through tonight? What, was that, what did Isaiah say in Isaiah passage? I don't want to be, I'm not sharing my glory with anybody. That's what God says. I don't do that. So, you know, understand that from the very start. So now if you've got another angel there, and he's not God, but he's worshipped as God, which the angel of Jehovah is, we've got a big problem here. And I don't think the Jehovah's Witnesses have really thought this through. Because in one case, yeah, it's an angel of the Lord, but when Hagar says it's the Lord, 
and he's constantly identified as and worshipped, then you go where you have genuine angels. By genuine, I don't mean the angel of the Lord isn't genuine. I'm just meaning non-divine angels. What do you see constantly that these angels, they don't want to be worshipped? Satan does. But the good guys, when they show up to help Christians, they don't want the angel, the interpreting angel that comes to John the Apostle. He, hey, I'm, I'm like your fellow brethren. Don't, you know, I, I may have a different set of clothes than you guys, uh, but I'm not God. So, where do, you put the, where do you put this in-between thing that Jehovah's Witnesses are always talking about? It gets back, Debbie, to when you go through those ancient heresies and realize that Arianism, which was a majority view at one time, that Arianism was finally destroyed by Athanasius' argument. Athanasius' argument pounded away at the Arians and said, if Jesus Christ is not God, then we are not saved. If Jesus Christ is not God, then knowing Christ does not mean I know God. And the Jehovah's Witnesses can't get away from that theological logic. It traps them in it. It's just that, like I said, they've started off with a wrong concept of God and, they, and all the Scripture subsequently is rammed and crammed through the filter. That's why it's so slippery talking with one of them. You can sit here and talk for hours and going like this with them. Very frustrating. And the Holy Spirit has to open their hearts because, you know, you just sit there and, duh. It doesn't work. Okay, um, next week uh, we'll continue on and we'll try to get now to stating the Trinity doctrine in a comprehensive way.